Ask anyone who was working in the airline industry on September 11, 2001, and they'll have a story. What you're about to hear are some of those stories told by people who responded in the days, weeks, and even months afterward. Assisting families of those on the four flights. Helping fellow employees come to terms with their grief. Working on the front lines and behind the scenes to get airlines back in the air with a host of new safety and security rules. Some of these stories have been told to family or others over the years, and a few of these will be heard for the first time on this podcast. September 11th, Airline Voices. My name is Marty St. George, and on September 11th, 2001, I work for United Airlines as Director of Network Planning. On September 11th, I actually was in Hong Kong. We had a annual planning meeting with our Asian sales and operations teams, and generally it happened that second week of September. I had flown out, I think on Sunday. We had you know, arrived on Monday, had meetings all day on Tuesday, and on Tuesday night we had a dinner for the whole team. We were at, I'm not sure if it's a hotel or a banquet hall or something, uh, on Hong Kong Island, and about 9.15 or so, everybody's pagers went off. So at this point, you know, I don't think Blackberries were a thing. You know, the operations people had pagers, and when everyone's pager goes off at the same time in an airline crowd, back then you knew what that meant. I had been in the business at that point, not quite 15 years, but I'd been involved in accidents before, so I sort of knew what that meant. So immediately, when they all go off at once, we knew something bad had happened. So the guy who ran Asia at the time gets on the phone and has a quick call with uh, OPB, the um, ops planning group in Chicago, and said, uh, we've had an accident, um, let's go to the office. So we all get up right in the middle of dinner, and we go downstairs to get cabs to try to get to United's offices, which were in Kowloon. So there are probably 25, 30 people at the dinner, and we all headed over, and I got in a cab with the guy who ran the who ran Asia, and he was on the phone while we were in the cab, and he's listening, and he hangs up, and he puts the phone down, and he sort of looks, and he says, they just told me that a United plane and an American plane each hit one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And we all kind of look at each other and think, well, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Nobody really knew what it meant, but regardless, we continue to head to the office, and he gets back on the phone, and then he hangs up a little bit. He's like, no, 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 they think it's a commuter airplane. I'm not sure what the story is, but we have a plane missing. Didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, we got to the office and went upstairs, and it was a pretty good-sized office, probably you know, 20,000 square feet. There was a rest center there and uh, all sorts of offices. And the TVs were on CNN, and we immediately realized what was going on. And, of course, everybody's in complete shock. Now, frankly, uh, and to be clear, and people don't talk about this very much, but on September 10th, United Airlines was in really bad shape. You know, we had just come out of the boom of the late 90s, the dot-com boom, and, you know, with the big hub in San Francisco, obviously we benefited very much from the boom. But then we went into the 2000 labor disputes, 
between the uh, pilots union and the company and we came out of it with a very, very expensive contract and we were losing money hand over fist. So company was not in great shape before. But we're all looking at ourselves thinking, what is this going to mean for demand? It was pretty clear right off the bat that there was some sort of terrorist involvement and frankly, we were all in panic mode as far as what this meant for the company, period. But notwithstanding, we all start working. So if you've been an airline employee through an accident, there's a process you follow. There's a book that uh, has a list of procedures in it that uh, when an incident's declared, everybody gets the book out and starts following it. And mostly it's tied to, uh, at least in, in an outstation like you know Hong Kong, it's tied to finding out whether you have any customers on the airplane who are local. At this point, we were uh, waiting for the manifest so we could see if we needed to have any family assistance people in China or Hong Kong, or actually anywhere in Asia for that matter. As that's happening, we are watching the TV and at the same time, the teletype machines are going absolutely nuts. I know this is a vestige of times long past, but you know, when I started the business, there was no email, at least not that business people used. And every airline ran off these teletype machines. And you had, there was this network that everybody was um, a member of. So within the company, generally operational notices were sent by teletype. So there are probably 15 or 20 teletype terminals around the office for different little groups. Things they needed to know would come across the teletype. And these things were just running constantly. And they ran on rolls of paper. Like think of it like a big roll of very low quality, sort of recycled type paper. And there's a dot matrix printer and it made this noise, you know, like you'd see in a movie. Uh, and these things were going nuts. And so I would go pick up the teletypes and read them. And it was chilling because we had things on there like here's a list of all the missing airplanes. There was a list of um, where the airplanes were being put down because we knew that the FAA had shut down the airspace. There was a note, uh, a message from Jim Goodwin who was the CEO at the time, who was, a, who was a very nice man and he wrote a very heartfelt note and it was something that very much made us realize how serious the situation was, not just on a business level but on a personal level. But notwithstanding, I keep watching these things come off the teletype. I'm just thinking to myself, this is history, like I've got to save these things. It didn't stop. I mean, the teletype was just running constantly. And there were tons of them there. There were tons of copies of stuff. And I mean, I love history. It's definitely the type of thing I should have saved. And of course, I ripped stuff off and then promptly used it as scratch paper as we started to do our planning. So uh, that, that, that plan never came to fruition. And frankly, it fades after a couple of years. So that's stuff you can't really save anyways. But notwithstanding, I wish I had saved some stuff. But we were sort of dealing with this minute by minute. And I remember not watching the TV when the first tower fell then sort of glancing up when people were buzzing a little bit and looking at the big cloud of dust and thinking to myself, is there a tower back there? Like, how come I can't see it? But nothing was really connecting at this point. So again, I was jet lagged. We've been working all day. It was, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, Hong Kong time. And we were just absolutely wired. You know, couldn't get a phone line back to the States. So it was very difficult to communicate to find out what was going on. I remember it was probably midnight or so. Uh, we were sitting in a conversation and the airport called, Hong Kong airport called, because they were about to dispatch the round the world flight. So we had flight one and flight two then that went um, San Fran, I think it was like San Fran, Hong Kong, or maybe LA, Hong Kong, Delhi, London, New York, and around the Horn. 
and uh, you know, airspace was closed in the U.S. It was not closed in Asia. And I remember the question came up when the airport says, "Hey, did we let this plane go or not?" And I remember sitting in the room and we're saying, oh, I, "I don't think they should go. <laughs> like, who knows when this plane is going to get back? Who knows if anything's going to be going on? It just seems like we should show a little discretion." So they did end up canceling the flight that night. We were there till three, four in the morning, and finally figured we had to go home and go to sleep. So I went back to the hotels, and I remember maybe got three hours of sleep. It wasn't that much, but I remember waking up and. Uh, this happened every day for a couple of weeks, where I would wake up and I was waking up in my normal, you know, generally content view of the world for like 5, 10, 15 seconds. And then you would remember not just where you were, but what was going on. And it's like, oh my God, like just this incredible sense of dread, like what is this world we're in right now? Um, realizing that, you know, we're in the middle of an incredible disaster, you know, thousands of people dead, incredible disruption of the economy, terrorism on our own soil, and I'm, you know, sitting here 7,000, 8,000 miles away. Not a great place to be. Now, the immediate thought was, how do we get back to Chicago to actually start fixing the airline? Because we immediately realized that demand would plummet at the thought of terrorism and airplanes used as a weapon of terrorism. Frankly, we're thinking to be cut 20%, 30%, 40%. Like, who, who's going to be willing to fly right now until things change? And we're trying to schedule remotely. You know, I was responsible for network planning. The VP was there and the senior VP. We were all in Hong Kong at the time. And, you know, we're sort of trying to plan in our heads, like, what should stay and what should go and what level of flying we should have. But it would have been much better to get back to Chicago. So we were talking to the people in the office, but, you know, it's a 12-hour time change. So... I guess a 13 hour, 11 hour time change. I was 11 or 13, I'm not sure, but neither end of there. It was a long, it was, it was, we were opposite on the clock, so it was very tough to plan. It was now Wednesday, and we're trying to figure out what the best scheme is to get back to Chicago. One of the guys said, you know what, let's just get as close as we can. There was a Lufthansa flight at uh, like 4 o'clock to Frankfurt, so we got tickets on Lufthansa, and we flew from Hong Kong to Frankfurt. The number one goal was to get closer to the U.S. Number two goal was to go to a place where there was more flying so that when airspace opened up, we had a better chance of getting on an airplane. I still remember getting on the plane and having the captain make a very, very heartfelt announcement. Apparently, we were not the only Americans who thought to get on the Lufthansa flight because they had filled up with Americans trying to get out of Hong Kong. And he, put a, he, he made a very nice announcement with the sympathy of uh, the German people for what happened on 9-11. We flew to Frankfurt, got into Frankfurt that night, and I still remember going to the hotel and giving them my credit card and thinking to myself, I don't know if I'll ever get reimbursed for this because I'm not sure United's going to stay in business. Again, September 10th, it was a sick company, and this could, this could have put the company over the edge. Woke up the next morning on Thursday. You know, we were now six hours time difference from Chicago, so it was much easier to get work done. And we start working with the team and trying to figure out how much to pull and what to cancel and Finally, uh, Wednesday night, went to sleep, excuse me, Thursday night, uh, after a day of work. And finally, the word had gotten out that uh, the airspace was going to open on Friday. So they had told all the United people who were stranded in Europe or Asia, get to Frankfurt and stay together so we can keep track of you. There were probably 15 or 20 people at this point in Frankfurt who were trying to head back to Chicago. They finally said, you know what, airspace is opening on Friday. We have two chances to get you back. One is... Dusseldorf, Chicago, um, it was a 767. It was flying at like 4 or 5 p.m. that day. 
Or, you know, we bought an A319 on Tuesday and it's sitting in Hamburg and it's going to get delivered. So if you can get to Hamburg, you can take the 319 back. My first thought was, ugh, like we could have used that money. I wish we hadn't spent the money on the airplane because um, we're going to need all the cash we can, we can uh, reserve right now. Second thing was that Dusseldorf Chicago flight is going to fill with revenue customers. So it'd probably be better for us to take the, the 319 delivery. So we made our way up to Hamburg. We got a ride over to the Airbus facility, and we could see seven or eight 319s and 320s on the flight line waiting to get delivered. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, I mean, how many of these airlines are going to be around five years from now because this industry was going to change pretty dramatically? We get on the airplane. We, again, there are probably 20, 25 people on it, is my guess. And I knew, I didn't know all of them, but I knew most of them, you know, from, uh, from work. But we started heading back to Chicago. We were going to stop in Reykjavik on the way for fuel. It was interesting because we landed in Reykjavik and we had done a lot of work on the airplane. So we got off the plane while they were refueling and immediately got on the phone to try to call the office to talk about what we looked at, what we were thinking of, etc. And it's funny because I had just been in Reykjavik maybe two months earlier, also on a delivery flight. Uh, I had stopped in Reykjavik and this is a place that, you know, growing up, I never imagined I'd ever see Iceland, and now I'd been here twice within three months. Uh, second time for not that great a reason. But the terminal was completely packed, people trying to get on airplanes back to the U.S. Uh, we could not take customers. Um, it was just the employees around the airplane. But we get back on, uh, we fly back, and we had a pool, you know, trying to keep ourselves somewhat sane, trying to guess what time we landed at Chicago. You know, I'd been working in scheduling for 10 years. I was pretty good at block time, so I put my prediction in. And we all basically threw in our foreign money. So whatever money we had left over into the pot for this pool. It's probably for 40, 50 bucks in the pool. And there was Thai money, there was Japanese money, obviously Hong Kong money, uh, there were uh, you know, European money, I mean, you name it. But we all put our bets in there. I remember we're flying back. I mean, I've flown to Chicago hundreds and hundreds of times. And generally, when you fly from the east, once you get to about Detroit, the plane starts slowing down, it starts descending, and you're on your path to get into O'Hare. You know, this plane was, part, I think it was part 91, you know, the cockpit door was open, and we were going in and out of the cockpit with the uh, ferry crew. We zoomed right past Detroit at full speed, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there's literally nobody in the sky. We don't have to slow down. We don't have to get in queue. There is no queue. <laughs> Uh, the only planes that were flying, interestingly enough, were United Express planes, and that's because they were all paid by the departure. Those were all capacity purchase agreements. They wanted to get in the air as quick as they can because they get paid whether the flight's got one person on it or 50 people on it. So there were some United Express planes in the air and us, and that was about it. As we started approaching O'Hare, I'm thinking, when are we going to slow down? Like, uh, this, is, this is amazing. I've just never had this experience before. And we finally got to like the edge of Lake Michigan, and then we start slowing down and descending, and we land at O'Hare. And I, again, so strange to see no other traffic out there. I did win the pool. I still have, I still have the Thai money and the yen that I won, um, sort of my, one of my little souvenirs. But um, and then you know the next day went to work and worked more or less nonstop for a couple of weeks just pulling the airline down, and we pulled down 30, 40 percent of the capacity. Uh, whether it's domestic, international. Those first couple of weeks, I mean, we were flying flights in and out of DCA and LaGuardia with 10, 15 people on them. Um, it, was, it was very, very sad, very hard. I mean, the experience that I had in 9-11 is nothing compared to the experience people in New York had uh, or in Washington.
I did have friends in Washington who had um, who had seen the plane going to the Pentagon. Uh, you know, I talked to them, and it's still still kind of screwed up about that. Twenty years later, my relationship was pretty distant, but. Working for an airline that was actually involved in 9-11 was sobering, and it's actually very sad. I mean, I've loved airplanes since I was a little kid and been in the airline business my entire career, almost my entire career. The thought that airplanes could be used as a weapon of destruction was just devastating, but notwithstanding, that's where we were. United lasted a year before we went bankrupt, unfortunately, and the company did reorganize and it's very healthy right now. but. It was truly a period that for a, you know, a management person in their line, certainly if you're at American United, uh, it was um, a level of involvement in the headlines that none of us ever, ever, ever wanted. Now, we are extremely blessed as an industry that flying is so much safer now than it was when I started. I mean, I've worked on several crashes at several airlines. and. Uh, you know, knock on wood, it's just much less common today for airplanes to crash. And we owe that to incredible developments in technology and training and also to the safety from vigilance from whether it's TSA or security or whoever. Hopefully we'll never be involved in a situation like that again. Uh, and I very much hope that I don't have to deal with that myself either. So thank you very much. Hope you like listening. I don't think I've ever told this story before. So this is a new experience for me. but. Um, let's hope that none of you have to go through an experience like this yourselves. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This podcast is made possible through individual donations and contributions. If you have questions or are interested in sharing your story, feel free to check out the Airline Voices Podcast page on Facebook, or you can email to airlinevoicespodcast at gmail.com. For those interested in helping support this podcast financially, please visit patreon.com and search for the Airline Voices Podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, and Airline Voices Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you soon.